You're listening to Love Stories with me, Dolly Alderton. A series in which I talk to guests about their most defining relationships. The passion, heartbreak, longing, familiarity and fondness that has formed who they are. My guest this week is the comedian, writer and actor Lolly Adafopi. She is known first and foremost for her character comedy, in which she inhabits personas that are not only recognisable in every friendship group, social situation and workplace, but also make a comment on the zeitgeist or current socio-political climate. Her unique brand of character comedy quickly led her to roles in sitcoms such as Damned, Lovesick and Plebs. In the last year, she's broken America, with less than half a decade of performing under her belt. Miracle Workers, set in heaven, sees her starring alongside Daniel Radcliffe and Steve Buscemi as God's assistant. More recently, she was cast in Shrill, the TV adaptation of Lindy West's best-selling memoir of the same name. But while she has loved her initial taste of Hollywood, her heart is still very much in London's comedy scene. Well, last year... So, like, December 2017, January 2018 was filming. The whole time? Yeah, I was I was away. I was in America. Was that the Steve... Super Shemmy, yeah. Shemmy project. And that, is mm-hmm. that, I listened to the Adam Buxton podcast, is that the one oh, where yeah. you ate the same, like, chicken sandwich <laughs> yeah, every night yeah. in a hotel? Yeah. Because what I just like? I just can never live in a hotel ever again. I mean, it, I never <laughs> I never really thought I would, but there's only this, a certain amount of stuff on room service. And you start to know the things you like. <laughs> Um, and yeah, and then once the um, woman delivering the food came up and was like, we well, just really want to know what you look like. <laughs> I was always ordering room service. So two months you were living in a hotel. Two months living in a hotel, yeah. Working most of the time. And other than the experience of um, of that amazing experience of, of being on a set and being on a film and acting, which must have just been so wild, mm. Like being away from home and living in a hotel, eating mm. the same chicken sandwich every night. Did what was your? <laughs> did you go slightly insane? Yeah, I think one thing that I've noticed about myself is that I don't realise that I'm feeling a certain way until it's like the peak of that feeling. Right. So people would always say like, "Are you not going mad?" Like, because I would I would stay in a lot because it was very cold, and uh, I would like watch Netflix and I would just sort of treat myself and have a nice time in the hotel. And then people would say, like, you're not, like, going mad, like, you're not really claustrophobic in the room. And I was like, no, I'm not. Yeah. And then I left the hotel and was like, oh, this is what it feels like to be a normal person. Yeah. And I suddenly felt great yeah. when I actually left. But when I'm in the room, I think, this is fine. Everything's fine. I don't need fresh air. Yeah. Even though I'm, like, actually quite manic. <laughs> and then... Because I find it interesting because you're... Um... The only thing I know about you on this subject is that you sent me, I would say, 3,000 text messages about what secondhand sofa to buy. Um, that so, also is because I feel like you have the knowledge of it. That's, I would never send that you, to anyone else. You kept saying that to me. You kept saying that. And I was like, does she think that? Does she yeah. think that I'm this sort of chic Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen character? Definitely. Or, is or I, it, I just think that you have the eye that I don't have. I think you're lying. I think you just know as the only person who would pick up your calls about it. No way, no way. But in terms of, so you're obviously someone who's... Yeah, I'm, I get obsessed with Those pic- I have so many pictures of these like ratty old I, yeah, this sofas is a, a and you being like, do, yeah. upholstery, three question marks. 
But it seemed to me that you are someone who, you seemed very excited because you were about to move into a new flat then, mm-hmm. weren't you? Yeah. And you seemed really excited about that whole yeah. thing. So as someone who's obviously like a homebody, mm-hmm. how do you find the comedy film thing of just being away all the time? Yeah, I think, well, before I moved into this flat, I was moving into like lots of different flats like every couple of years. Mm. And so that, again, that was a thing that I didn't really realise was stressing me out at the time I thought like no I don't mind like I I live in America for a bit and then I come back to my flat and then maybe I have to move out of my flat and that's just sort of what being in your 20s in London is and then it got to a point where I was like actually I think that I'm never calm I'm never really okay with the fact that I'm moving around everywhere um and that's when I was like I need to actually just find because I I would just like talk to people and they'd be like yeah I've lived in Crouch End for 10 years and I was like that's what I want (laughs) I want to I want to just have a place that I live and it just be done and have like the like coffee shop that I go to so how much comedy are you doing right now how much because it feels like your career is kind of fragmented now into film acting or tv acting and doing stand-up well not stand-up doing character Mm -hmm. comedy yeah it's quite yeah I'm kind of again trying to find the balance of doing both because when I first started doing more acting I didn't even think that I would stop doing gigs and so I would film I would like get up at five o'clock in the morning and film all day until 7pm and then I would go straight to a gig. <laughs> I never even considered that you should not do that. Yeah. And then I realised that you can say, oh, sorry, I'm filming. I can't do this gig. I basically like have a, maybe it's because when I first started doing comedy, I was really desperate for gigs and you couldn't just like do a gig whenever you wanted to. So now when someone offers me a gig, I get such guilt for saying no, even yeah. though I have to say no a lot of the time. And I think it's that fear as well, isn't it, that it's the freelancer mentality that I think mm. never leaves you. And actors have it. In Dustin Hoffman's Desert Island Disc, he said every time he finishes a film, he is convinced he will never, ever, ever work again. <laughs> wow. And I think that the other problem is, is you the fear of turning down work mm. is the fear that one has got above their station. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That you're tempting fate or something. Yeah. And the, yeah, exactly. I'm like, no, because I would ha- I would hate to be the kind of person who is like, I do TV acting now. I don't do gigs yeah. <laughs> anymore. That's my least favourite kind of person. <laughs> but then at the same time, like even if I finish filming for two months, I then think I don't want to do any gigs now or do anything for a while. Yeah. I just want to relax. Um, but I have to do gigs to keep writing material. Yeah. Um, and keep and also because I find comedy much more challenging than acting that Do sounds very really arrogant <laughs> but, no no that's interesting yeah because yeah. I think I think maybe it's just because I've done some I've been very lucky to do lots of very cool comedy things that don't feel like I'm really struggling to get into the character or anything like that mm-hmm. um but like Edinburgh is the hardest thing mm. I've ever done which is such a privilege thing to say <laughs> <laughs> the Edinburgh Festival Fringe Doing my one-woman solo show at the Pleasant's Courtyard. It's the hardest thing anybody has ever done, actually. Um, but in terms of, like, comedy and acting and work that I've done, it's the hardest... Because it's, it's, like, six months or more of writing something and then performing it for a month every night. And it def- and, and just me as well. And it's all on my shoulders of how well it's going to go. Mm. Whereas with a TV show, there's so many people who are responsible for it. Maybe if I was making my own TV show, I wouldn't feel like that, but... At the moment, I'm like, this feels like a much more rewarding, challenging thing. The comedy. Yeah. And then acting is like, almost like a treat, I think. Yeah. Because it just feels like, oh, wow, I can't believe I get to do this. This is just fun, almost. And before we started recording, we were talking about how 
we both are oh, <laughs> becoming massive dickheads. We both are understanding. We're catching ourselves. Yeah, coming. catching ourselves in moments of realising how easy it is to become a giant baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me a bit more baby. about that. Um, well, I think I'm, maybe I've spoken about this on another podcast, but there was once I where... don't want to hear it then. I want <laughs> new material. <laughs> Next. Uh, I was in a scene, I was filming a scene in a TV show and I was eating a banana in the break and then they were ready to start filming again and my chair had been like positioned in the right place for the cameras and everything and then I went to get up to put my banana peel in the bin and they were like, oh no, no, we'll take that for you. And I was like, I can't, I can't do that. I'm really sorry, like, can I just put it in the bin? Yeah. And they were like, no, because it would just take, make everything take time me going to the bin and like making sure the chair was, and they were like... Running behind and stuff. And I get that as well when... Cause I have so weird. Because I have allergies, which is very cool. And I'm always blowing my nose. And so if I ask a makeup artist for a tissue and they give me a tissue and then they're ready to shoot, the makeup artist will always go take to take my tissue, tissue. And I'm like, I can't... That is too much. But equally you understand... And then you it's almost mad. get used to it. It's mad, but you also understand that, that the efficiency thing, because there are like such... Beasts like, and there's these these shoots, and there are so many people there, and there's so many things to do. Mm. Almost this like grotesque hierarchy mm. of what people can and can't do. You understand how that could like oil the the cogs of efficiency a bit? Yeah, yeah, definitely. If everyone yeah. has their own job. Yeah, you know the talent don't do this, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, you were saying you were telling me about when you flew business class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how yeah, you now just believe you are a business class person. Yeah, because you, once you've flown... Also, I think the thing is that when you fly business class, guys, um, you realise that it's not, like, luxury. It's just what flying should be. Yeah. Like, everyone should, everyone should be in business class all the time. That should yeah. be the standard. I've never flown first class. I feel like that is maybe, like, a separate thing. Yeah. But business class is just, like, making people comfortable. It's just legroom, basically. It's just legroom and, like, people being quite nice to you, the, the air hostesses and stuff. But yeah, so I flew I flew business class um, when I was going to film something and then I had to come home for Christmas and they weren't paying for my flights. So I was looking at the flights and I was thinking, I could just book I could just book a business class flight. And it was obviously three times, four times as much. And I was like, but it's just not that comfortable if you're not in business class. And then I had to like catch myself and be like, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's fine. You've been doing it all your life. Why would you suddenly need to do it now? And actually now I still think like, I can't imagine ever paying for business class constantly yeah. myself when I see people in business class I'm like surely we've all had this paid for yeah. none of us have ever <laughs> would ever think like it's so expensive <laughs> like even even if I was a millionaire I think I would still look at the price of business class and be like that's too expensive yeah <laughs> it's in comparison it's it's mad like the things you could buy yeah for that journey that yeah insane as someone now who is gaining a kind of large-scale public platform and who you are going to receive preferential treatment in certain areas of your life. How do you... Are you worried about not becoming an asshole? Is it something that you think about? Yeah, I think about it quite a lot. I just... Because... And I think it's just quite hard, like, not to take all the responsibility away from me and actors, but it's quite hard when you're sort of told that this is how things should be. Yeah, in your in your work life all day, and it's quite hard. Like then going back to your normal life and seeing the differences and thinking, okay, but which ones do I like mm. want to instill into my regular life? Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely like 
very aware of not being a dick, I think. And also because I think maybe with acting, it's a little bit different. And it's, I'm quite glad that I never just went straight into acting. But I think because with comedy, like, you start off and you just, you have to start from the bottom. You can't just, like, get land. Like, yeah, land there's no way part. of... Yeah. yeah. Whereas with an, with an actor, maybe you you struggle for a bit, then you land an amazing part, and then suddenly everything's great and you're a star. Whereas with comedy, you, you have to, like, write your jokes mm-hmm. and you have to do terrible gigs. Um, and so I think that probably helps comedians in being... I mean, not all of them, but mm. helps lots of comedians in, like, staying some way humble, I think. So how long have you been doing comedy? When did that begin? I've been doing comedy for, I think, about four and a half years. I, I remember I, I like graduated in 2012 and then for a couple of years was like, I don't know what to do. What were you doing and how were you filling your days in that time? Um, I was interning at The Invisible Dot, which is a co- comedy production company. Right. Which was very cool and which is where all the comedians that I liked were performing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was working in a very boring job in Leicester Square at the same time, for a uh, test preparation company. So people who do like the LSAT and the MCAT and all these like business and law okay. exams. It's a company that does classes right. and online tests and stuff to and, prepare you. Okay, and were you just doing like administrative work there? Yeah, I started off as a receptionist and then I became an operation international operations officer, I think. Okay. And it was just honestly the most boring thing in the world and it was I was so bad at it <laughs> I started off really good and then they promoted me to this new job that basically nobody wanted to do because all the computer systems you had to use were failing and I was just like you know when you're like I think this is almost funny how much I don't know what I'm doing mm. <laughs> um, and <laughs> and how, how how long were you there for um altogether I think I was there for Maybe two years. Just wow! So that's quite a long time. Did mm. you make friends there? Yeah, I had I had one friend, and then she left. But I had I had basically one friend who also didn't like it. Nobody there really seemed to enjoy what they were doing. It's like quite nobody wants to work for a test preparation company. <laughs> um, but I when I just maybe like six months before I left, um, I started doing a lot more comedy. And then I got an agent while I was working there. And did your colleagues know about it? Uh, my my like one work friend knew about it, and then occasionally like people would, I would like have an audition for something, and I would have to like um, take two hours off, and then they would be like, oh, like what's the audition for? Okay. And in the beginning, I think it was like quite a fun, exciting thing, and then glamorous. Had, yeah, and then I had an appraisal with my boss, and she was like, we can see that you are spending a lot of your time looking at your own headshots. <laughs> I was like, Did she say uh, that yeah, specifically? Literally, because I didn't realise that the big boss could see my screen. <laughs> and I had an agent who was really like, my agent didn't really care about the fact that I had a full-time job. So she was like, I need you to send me your headshots. I need you to send me the headshots you've chosen by 12pm today. And so I was obviously so stressed trying to do this job that I couldn't do. Also trying to pick my headshots. Also just like spending so much time on like BuzzFeed. Because I was like, <laughs> because I hated my job so much. Um... <laughs> all in plain sight <laughs> yeah, of your boss. Literally. Um I remember I think I think it was because I was so bad at it and well, I was I wasn't bad at it, it was just so hard. Um and it was just so like I couldn't comprehend being able to do this job. And so it just almost became like farcical. Because I remember like when <laughs> Beyonce's album came out, <laughs> I remember literally just putting my headphones on and just sitting at my desk and listening to the album because I was like, I can't I can't do the job that I'm meant to do. 
But I so I, I remember I was I had that appraisal, suddenly felt awful and then really wanted to go to Edinburgh that year to do like my first like half hour or 20 minutes sort of just trying out characters and and because I've been going up for like five years and I was like I want to do it now um but I knew that obviously you can't just take a month off of your job to Mm. go and do another job and so I asked them and I said like is there a way in which I could do Edinburgh if I like worked a bit from home or like Mm. is there like a way that I could do it and they said yeah you can do it if you work I think like nine to five basically from Mm. home in Mm. Edinburgh and I like considered it for a while and then I was like I just I know that that's a terrible idea because both my show and my job will be awful if I do that yeah and so I was like okay this is my sign I think to quit this job and what were those first just like brief synopses or bios of those characters that that you were doing on stage Um, the first character I did was a girl called Gemma who was like every gig that I did it was her first ever gig and she'd never done stand-up before and she was basic she was just really annoying and um she kept talking about how random she was it was it was that era of when everyone hated the word random or when people were starting to say it too much and people were starting to get annoyed yeah, by it yeah um and she would like constantly reference her best friend who was in the audience but then tell these really sad horrible stories about her best friend um because she had like nothing interesting to say basically and she would just expose all this horrible stuff about her like poor best friend who's come to support her <laughs> Um, and she would always like shout out to the girls from work who'd come to see her <laughs> set, but they were clearly not there. <laughs> how do you write characters? How do they how do they come to you? Um, in general, it tends to be like an annoying trait that I've noticed in someone that I mine for comedy, or a trait, or like um, an accent or a mannerism in someone that yeah. I just think is funny, even if the person themselves isn't annoying. Um, so I think maybe because um, it's fun to do a character that I don't like, but I'm sort of on the audience's side of saying, I don't yes. like this character. Yes. Rather than doing stand-up and saying, please like me. And That's so true. Mm. It is almost working in complete opposition with what so many just observational straight stand-ups do. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That must feel quite freeing, I suppose. I think so, yeah. I think it's a lot easier to... Um, say your opinions and say like put forward arguments in the guise of someone who's stupid mm. or is coming across as stupid because mm. if the audience do like them then it's great and if the audience don't like them then it's also great because it's like well I don't like them either mm. You mentioned um, that first Edinburgh that you did that first run at Edinburgh with your first show Lolly and by some reviewers you were criticised or it was observed that you hadn't referenced your race enough mm-hmm. um, which I imagine was incredibly infuriating because you know not only is it difficult to be a minority as a comedian both black and a woman mm-hmm. um, but for then to your material to be dictated to yeah. to you by dint of that I imagine mm-hmm. is very very infuriating yeah. um, which you also pointed out had you done that in the first place you probably would have been criticised even more yeah. for focusing on that. Mm-hmm. And then your second show was kind of making all those observations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you feel that pressure or a kind of sense of self-consciousness when you're writing shows now? Um, yeah, I do. I think I, I feel it, but I'm maybe slightly less frustrated by it now because I sort of come to expect it. Because when I did that first show... Um, I had had never done it before, never really knew what to expect. And so it just made perfect sense to me that I would try and write the funniest show 
And because I was like, well, nobody knows who I am. And obviously I've got loads of things to say about race, but I I don't know that I'm best equipped to say them in a comedy show yet. I want to mm-hmm. show that I'm funny. Mm-hmm. And then I can then I can say like, okay, I've earned your trust in being funny now. I've got some things to say. And so when I got those reviews, I was like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what else could I have done? Um, and now I think just ha- having more experience, I'm like, there's always going to be someone who says something. And I can't really let that sort of like throw me off kilter, I think. Mm. Um, so, I th- yeah, because even we were talking about um, the Harry Hill thing. Um, oh, yes. Just to remind our listeners, mm. there was a charity gig that um, was advertised right before Christmas. The 24 Comedian Strong lineup, was it? Yes. A lot of comedians. Mm-hmm. And uh, none of them were any comedians of colour. They were all white comedians. And Lolly tweeted the lineup and just wrote very, very, very amusingly, <laughs> someone's dreaming of a white Christmas. Yes. Most of the yeah. internet agreed with you that it was a strange thing to be happening in yeah. 2018. Yeah, yeah. And well, I think most, was... most of comedy and most of uh, the UK sort of media agreed, yes. but then most of the world didn't really. That's interesting. Yeah. Because that's so interesting. This shows how ignorant and the, the bubble that I'm in because I just assumed maybe because of my timeline, everyone was so accepting of this observation that yeah. you made. I think when I first said it, because, because it was just a joke, because it, it wasn't a, a tearing down of the gig, most comedians and people would retweet it and support it. Um, and then it just became too big basically and, and I had a really really nasty yeah because I guess it just it, it got turned into um what it wasn't which it got turned into this person uh thinks that all charity gigs should have an equal number of people of color and white people and if they don't then they should be um cancelled mm. um and so almost like understandingly like if that had been what I'd said there would be outrage and I think that's what a lot of people thought that it was um, so it just became lots of people being like, well, so what if, if there were 10 black comedians on the gig, what do you complain? And like people saying like, oh, you don't complain when, you know, Eddie Murphy does a gig with um, three other black comedians. Um, and so that, that that was the kind of thing where I thought as a black woman, I'm sure that if a white male comedian had made this joke, it wouldn't mm-hmm. have been turned into that. Totally. Because nobody would assume that they would have the anger about it that they assumed that I did. Well, that was that was a horribly racist undertone to it, is, is that I think Chortle or somewhere kind of reported it as this tirade, this angry yeah. tirade that you'd launched. And obviously that keys into a really insidious and damaging and incorrect stereotype of, you know, black anger. Mm. Um, but the thing I took from it that I found most illuminating is you did an Instagram post where you said... You made it very clear what what your intentions were when Mm -hmm. you made that joke. And something you said was, I'm not, when I observe these strange discrepancies Mm. that are very, very common when it comes to issues of race, when I observe it and make a joke about it, Mm. that is totally, I have every right to do that. And what that is not doing is attacking people Mm. or launching an angry tirade on them. I reserve my right to be able to call things out. And I'm not saying you all have to behave. What you don't do 
and I'm glad that there are people who do this, but this is not what you do. Mm -hmm. You don't say, this is how the world should operate. These are the rules that I think should be enforced. Yeah, You're saying people can make whatever choices they want, mm -hmm. but you still are allowed to call them out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if, if someone wanted to back it up and say, this is the reason why the gig was this way, then that's fine. But it was just lots of people saying like, it, it wasn't anyone apologising for what is a weird poster. It was just, you know, people putting words in my mouth and assuming that I had said something that I hadn't. Mm. Um, and, yeah, just sort of assuming that if I'm making a joke about a charity, it means that I'm against a charity, which I, mean, I just don't think would happen if, with um, a white comedian. But, I mean, who knows? But I just don't... I just think that because... Uh, people think that issues of race or racism affect black people. They think that if I comment about race, it means that I'm outraged by something mm. and I feel like personally affronted by something, mm. which isn't the case. But that said, something I'm very interested with you is your relationship to political correctness. Mm -hmm. Because I think I kind of identify with it and I think a lot of people of my age do, but we're all too scared to identify publicly this way. In the, you know, broadly speaking, it seems like political correctness is something that you are really bang up for. Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, progression and making the world a better place and being yeah. more inclusive. Mm -hmm. But I love that in your work, you also unpick, mock and send up and analyse um, the kind of potential hysteria and irrationality of political correctness. Mm -hmm. And I love that you, both of those truths and those interests can exist for you. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, I think uh, when I was writing my second show, I was like, okay, I want to write a right-wing comedian character because there was one who was sort of saying a lot of stuff on Facebook and I thought this must be ripe for comedy. Yeah. Um, and then I just found it really hard and I, I couldn't really work out how to write a funny right-wing comedian character without just being like, without just sort of saying things that I didn't agree with and mm. presenting them as if they were stupid. Mm, um, mm. And then I, I realised that it was much funnier to um, write a character who believes that they're very left-wing and believes that they're really progressive but then isn't. Um, and I think that's what, that's when I was just that's when I realised basically that the people who are closer to me, the people that I observe the most, I think, are much easier for me to um, turn into a character rather than someone who I just completely disagree with and I have no time for. Yeah. Um, and also, I guess, like the right wing portrayal of what left wing people are like. So, like all of those ideas of um, saying that you're not allowed to say things anymore and that. Um, people get offended if you say things, which I don't think we really know that many people who, who exist like that. But yeah. that is just definitely like a a picture that the right tried to put forward as mm. if just just to make people outraged. Yeah. Um, and to like push them away from liberalism, I think. We had uh, me and my writing partner, we wrote a script about two best friends who voted differently uh, for the EU referendum and writing the character who was the Remain voter mm -hmm. was really easy. Yeah, yeah. And then writing that Leave character, it just completely shattered the script. We just couldn't. <laughs> we just couldn't. And we kept interviewing. <laughs> we kept interviewing Brexiteers and yeah. we just would, like, get to the end of a conversation with them and be like, no, that's, we can't have her. That's not yeah. convincing. It doesn't feel real enough. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Do you yeah. Know what I mean, it's not yeah. convincing enough. <laughs> so in the end, we were like, what's the least 
offensive reason that we've heard as to why a person would want to leave the EU. Mm -hmm. And the thing we just kept referring to was, I think fish, something to do with fish. Yeah, fishermen. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Something to do with tractors. Yeah, yeah. We've got got to pay because they can't, with a tax law, (laughs) fishermen. Because of the docks and because it's coming in through the docks. She's just a salt of the earth <laughs> yeah, yeah, fish yeah. lover. Yeah. And then we, it was like, it was on those things that you do with a script where we're like, well, we'll, we'll just park that for a moment. Yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. And then it yeah. gets to like going into the channel to pitch it. And yeah. there are just these huge gaps that just say like fish, four question marks. <laughs> I had almost an identical thing where um, I was doing a report, like a comedy report for a TV show about the referendum. And so we went to Brussels um, and we'd written two scripts for depending on what the outcome was. Um, and obviously the remaining in the EU script was so much funnier. <laughs> and it was like, so th- the idea was that I would sort of go around, I was like, go to the building where, like some main building in Brussels, um, where there were like loads of journalists outside and, and people from Brussels. And I would say like, will you take us back? <laughs> and sort of like be really like, coy and sort of embarrassed that we made such a fuss and then yeah. stayed in the EU and we had all these like funny bits planned and then the leave script was just sort of quite bare <laughs> and like we had like some stuff written but we just didn't even think like yeah, we, just, yeah. we, just didn't, we didn't even think oh actually if this happens we need a better script we just thought okay so the leave script will have blah, 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 and, then, <laughs> and then we'll say oh dear I've left the EU oh no and then obviously it was like such a sad day yeah <laughs> So oh, that we just really had to like horrible. regroup and be like, how can we t- make this funny? Because nobody... It's not funny. Yeah. yeah. We'd, we'd go out to people and say like, do you like Vox Pops with people and say like, what do you think? And they're all like, it's a terrible day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible time of history. And Where do like, we find the funny? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was none. Um, but yeah, so that, yeah, it's just very depressing in the end. <laughs> Lolly, onto your first love story. Can yes. you tell me a story of first love, please? Uh, so my first love, uh, I'm going to change his name. Um, his name is Arthur, and uh, I mean it's not it's not really first love, but it's like first semblance of love mm-hmm. because I was probably five. I think he was basically the funniest boy in my school, and it, and he was in my class. And I think maybe it was just the birth of me being in love with comedy, but I was just so obsessed with how funny he was. And I was also so obsessed with the fact that, like, there were obviously, like, boys in the class that most people fancied and who were, like, I mean, it sounds so weird, but the fit fit boys in your class when we were five and six. I remember them, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Um, But he wasn't really one of them. And I, I think I just found it, like, baffling that he wasn't one of them because everyone knew that he was so funny. That's so lovely <laughs> and so interesting because that is like obviously really early, a really early indication of the thing that you find most important and magnetic and exciting mm. in life, which yeah, is yeah. someone's sense of humour. Yeah, and even now, if even if someone is the fittest person I've ever seen, if they're not, I just can't. I just almost find it embarrassing. Mm. <laughs> if, yeah. if someone's if someone's really muscly and toned and really fit and doesn't have a sense of humour, I'm like, you are the lamest person <laughs> I've ever met. So going back to Arthur, mm-hmm. did you kiss him? Did you Never. hold hands? No. Uh, I don't know if we ever held hands. It was, I mean, it's almost an unrequited love because we no, nothing ever happened. Um, and we were just like very good friends for a long time. And then 
uh, obviously I went, I went to a girls' school, he went to a boys' school, I think. And we would, like, see each other occasionally because we lived in, like, neighbouring towns, but still nothing happened. And even when I started to get a bit older and, like, into my teens, when I started to think maybe I could, like, ask him out or something, I just never really had the confidence to and it never really felt like it was going to go that way. Wait, so were you still in touch with him? I think we were, like, friends on Facebook and we would, like, bump into each other at parties occasionally, but nothing ever happened. And then he had a girlfriend and then we were just, like fond friends I think and then we just like drifted apart and then I saw him maybe when I was like maybe like five years ago I saw him at Victoria Station um, and he was on his way to <laughs> to buy a flat he was on his way to view a flat to buy and I was like in my overdraft like <laughs> hung over uh, on my way b- uh, back to my parents house Um and the only thing that I remember really about, apart from being so stressed about seeing him, is that he was wearing a really pristine white T-shirt and uh, I hugged him and then all of my brown foundation went <laughs> to his T-shirt and he didn't notice, I just didn't say anything and I thought, he's not going to get that flat because <laughs> <laughs> he's got brown smeared across his T-shirt. Um, maybe that's my revenge. So where did you grow up? In Sutton. So I went to school in Cheam, um, which is like the borders of South London. Okay. I maintain that it's London, and I'll argue <laughs> to the death of anyone who says that it's sorry. Um, but it's the London borough of Sutton. There's red buses everywhere. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but I think it's, it's kind of like you. It's like that border of, like, is this is this London, is it not? Yeah. Um, I think that leaves you with an identity crisis Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, because anyone I know who like grew up in Kentish Town, I'm like, you're the coolest person yeah, <laughs> I've yeah. ever met. I'm interested that you went to an all-girls school. Mm-hmm. I always want to grill. Yeah. <laughs> he went to all-girls school. Mm-hmm. Looking back retrospectively, what what effect do you think that experience had on you? Um, there, was, there was another school, there was a boys' school, and they did CCF. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's like weird pretend army. It's so weird now. Like, at the time, it was like, I didn't do it, but I never really questioned it. But now, like, if I had a child and they were like, I want to be part of CCF, I'd be like, no way. (laughs) Absolutely not. Um, But yeah, so they did, some of the girls did CCF with the boys from another boys' school. And that's basically how everyone made their links. So how were you with boys when you were a teenager? Were you interested in them? Um, I think up until... Maybe sixth form, I was like obsessive about like celebrity crushes. Like uh, who? Um, I'm trying to think of the ones who are not comedians that I now know. Oh, <laughs> um, really? Uh, lots of like like Shia LaBeouf, I was obsessed with from, from even Stevens and then through to his um, incredible acting work. Um, and like loads of like Disney Channel. <laughs> people because again I think because they were funny and I was like this is what I want to be doing and then when I became maybe like yeah around sixth form and like A-levels when we would go to the library on study leave and revise and be around boys then I started to sort of be more normal around them I think but then even then like I remember there was a guy that I really fancied um, who I probably barely spoke to but was like one of the CCF group um, and we would like occasionally talk on MSN Messenger and it was his birthday coming up and he... <laughs> so embarrassing. <laughs> it was his birthday coming up 
And he told me that he really liked Banksy. <laughs> and and so I got a T-shirt made that had a Banksy print on it and gave it to him and he was so unbothered by it. <laughs> I think he definitely left it in the pub where he was having the birthday. But I remember, like, because it was, I don't know, maybe like 2000 and seven and it's not as easy as it is now to just like make a t-shirt yeah. so i would oh, i was like going on these odd websites <laughs> and it probably took like three weeks to come it's so sweet <laughs> but that's the kind of thing i would do i would like i would convince and it would never be like the hottest guy or something it would just be like the guy that i think like, okay me and him are sort of on a level he's, yeah. he's made a few funny jokes i think this is something that could really work yeah um and it, yeah I would, I would do something like that that i thought was like a cool like <laughs> off the cuff <laughs> casual thing to do that actually took up so much of my time and energy and then I would realise at that moment like oh this is not (laughs) this is not what I thought it was at all and so it seems like you were quite a romantic like you get quite obsessed with people yeah I think I think probably being starved from boys in an all-girls school made you made one um quite obsessive over them when they presented themselves it was like okay well we've got to take this opportunity while we've got it (laughs) oh my god yeah yeah and the, and it it reminded me you saying about the girls who did CCF and they mm-hmm. were the the portal to to boys. Yeah, those girls with the contacts would then become like the most powerful girls in school. Yeah, yeah. It's so fucking weird. It's so mad. But I also think it's maybe because I was trying to think if it's better to go to a mixed school or a, or girls school. And obviously, again, speaking from a place of privilege, but I do th- I am very thankful for how hard I was made to work. Like being able to feel like I have something with the like GCSEs that I have and the A-levels that I have. Um, I think like when you're a young woman who has so many different things to worry about, it's nice to have like at least one thing where you're like, okay, well, I feel confident in this thing, like my academic achievement. Mm. This is a thing that I can use. Mm, that's interesting. Least. That's interesting to hear you say that because I think maybe I can be a bit too... I th- I th- I feel I feel a lot of resentment about mm. the fact I went to an all girls school. Oh yeah, I did for a long time, but I think that was when I was so obsessed with boys, and I was like, I could have been so much more normal. But yeah, I think yeah, when I was single in my early twenties, I was like, oh, why am I so ill-equipped to get a relationship? See, I still feel that now. And I mean, I now f- that now that we're going through that period of like men are trash, I'm like, that was actually fine. And now at least I have my. <laughs> GCSEs that period (laughs) and it will last (laughs) are we going through this like patriarchy bashing phase and we'll get over this phase it's just a phase (laughs) and then we'll be obsessed with them again yeah yeah. please Uh, no I I think I still it's really interesting to you say that because I haven't thought about being grateful for the focus that it gave me on academia Mm. I think because I didn't really focus on academia but it did give me a wonderful best friend who's like my sister Mm -hmm. which I'm always very grateful for and I think we wouldn't have been so sort of intertwined in such an obsessive friendship which which has ended up being like a relationship for life Mm -hmm. like a a really important part of my identity in my life I don't think I would have got that if we'd been around boys yeah yeah but the thing that I the thing as you touched on I think the thing that I resent is I still find it so difficult to relate to men in a romantic way, I think. Yeah. Or in a general way, to be quite honest. And I do, when I trace that back, and I have done a lot of tracing back, Mm -hmm. a lot of it is to do with 
not being around them for 18 years. Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, no. Maybe because I, I, I went had the to, primary school. Yeah, no, it, I didn't. Yeah. yeah. I didn't have my Arthur. No, until I went to boarding school, <laughs> so 16 years. I spent 16 years of, of, of never being around boys. Mm. And I do think that, like, of course that's going to have an effect on someone. Yeah, but then in a way I'm like, that's good because you've been able to focus on your career and... I think I would have been a lot more distracted and not as uh, directed towards being a comedian and having that as my one goal. Mm. I think if I was really, if I'd been really good at talking to boys, I probably would have just focused on that and not really had this direct thing that mm. I wanted, this one goal that I wanted to achieve. Well, speaking of obsessions, this leads on to your second love story. Mm -hmm. Tell me about this guy. I met him at a party when I was about 17. I mean, I wish I was older now so that I could be like, oh, and nobody will remember who he was, but it wasn't that long ago. Um, but I met him at a party and again, it was a thing where he was with a guy who everyone else fancied and he was sort of the like quieter guy who was just quite interesting and had like, a very good sense of humour. Um, and again, I was just like, well, this is it. This is brilliant. He's the one for me. Everyone else is like getting distracted by good looks and floppy hair mm. and I've actually like zeroed in on the good stuff um, and again nothing happened um, but we we would speak on Emerson Messenger so much <laughs> to the point where I was like this has to be this is a relationship yeah because yeah. the hours that we're spending talking to each other and sending each other music and stuff um, and, and I remember writing him a letter again doing these like weird like acts of like these like artistic things that I would do. Um I think maybe I maybe I like watch too much TV and was like this these are like the weird things people do and it works in television. Yeah, it so. feels very like ten things I hate about exactly, you. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Something you'd catch on Nickelodeon maybe. Yeah. I was obsessed with Nickelodeon, so that makes sense. Um uh, yeah, I wrote him a letter and because basically he he wanted to be a writer and he'd written a like the first like maybe five chapters of a novel and we were like 17 <laughs> and I was so impressed by that because everyone that I was friends with like wasn't really that ambitious or the guys that I'd fancy weren't that ambitious and to have this guy who seemed like such an adult and had like probably had the the front page that you have now like the template of his name and like address and stuff and when he first sent it to me I was so impressed by it and I also like like clocked the address and I not so same stalker, but I <laughs> wrote a letter. I think maybe I'd like gone away or something, but I wrote him a letter and I sent, I posted it to him. Um, and at the bottom, I like wrote something in German because we'd both talked about German. And I wrote like, you're the most interesting person I've ever met. <laughs> and I can't bear where this story is headed. I mean, it's, it's possibly the most embarrassing that's ever happened to anyone. <laughs> Um, but I posted in this letter thinking, like, this is it. Like, this is my, like, big act that is, that's going to seal the deal. Um, and then, like, a few days later, we both on Open to Messenger, and I was like, oh, did you get my letter? And he was like, yeah, I did. How did you get my address? <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> not how I thought this conversation was going to go. And then, like, not long after that... Um, this is actually quite depressing. No, I'm desperate to hear. <laughs> but but basically, like then we 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 went to uni, separate unis. We all everyone went to uni, 
And then I think maybe like when I was home for the holidays, um, bumped into him again. And then someone told me that like one of my friends from school had gone up to visit him at his uni and they'd like slept in the same bed or something. And I was obviously insane about it. And I was like, even though nothing had ever happened between me and this guy, but everyone had known how much I'd liked him. Oh. And there'd been like this one night where um, I'd like borrowed my friend's dress and we'd, we were go, all going to this party where he was going to be. <laughs> I mean, looking back, it was awful. But we'd like, we'd seen him like on the other side of the street and I was wearing these like really tottery heels and this tiny dress. Um, and they were like, go over and talk to him, go over and talk to him now. And so I just sort of like walked this really long walk over to him. He probably like walked a few steps and I just like walked for what felt like 10 minutes, just like facing him. Uh, and then got there and just had like a very normal conversation and nothing ever happened. Um, but yeah, everyone was like aware of this thing. that everyone had Sorry, just that really long walk of you and those top three. Like... <laughs> clacking along a Sutton <laughs> High Street. Sutton High Street, yeah. It was just the silence and just all you can hear is the heels and nobody else talking. Everyone just watching. <laughs> um, so, yeah, everyone everyone knew that I really liked this guy. And it was like a very like well-known thing. Did he know? I think he must have known. Yeah, he he did know. I eventually learned that he knew. But I, I never really like knew the extent of... I, I never knew if he knew the extent of how... Uh, mm. much I fancied him mm. but then so after this thing happened where like he slept in the same bed as my friend or something and I was really annoyed about it um, I think I probably lashed out at my friend and was like how could you do this to me and then she, she lashed back and was like he thinks that you were really obsessed with him and I was like hey <laughs> I see so this oh, is oh that's so painful yeah so in my head it was like I was this victim of um, them talking un- about it yeah yeah I thought that I was the only one who knew how much I liked him. And that even though I'd written this letter and done, like, some weird stuff. Did you um, do any other weird? I don't think so. I think the letter was sort of the peak where I was like, okay, I need to, I need to rein it in. Um, but just the amount that I liked him, I think, in my head, I, I, I thought I was the only one who knew. Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm sure, like, I must have, you know, just spoken to him so much and mm. always, like been interested in him and it must have just been much more obvious than I thought it was um but yeah so when I was when I was like confronted with the idea that <laughs> he had said that I was obsessed with him I was suddenly like shocked into um realizing that I wasn't as like coy I think and as subtle as I thought I'd been being that story I found so upsetting because it reminded me of so many like unrequited love stories mm. that I have from my teenage life and it just makes me so fucking relieved I'm not a teenager anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when you say something like going back into the head of a 17-year-old, you saying that thing of like, oh no, the weirdest thing I did, it was way too much, it was so mental, mm. the, the real nadir of this obsession is sending him a really sweet letter saying, yeah. I, I think you're a talented writer and well done on writing five chapters. Mm. Like that's a totally normal yeah. thing to do, yeah, yeah. but I but like you're you're not allowed to be earnest when you're a teenager, exactly, yeah. and that's the thing I hated so much about it. Mm. You couldn't express any emotion, yeah, freely. Really, you have yeah, to be yeah. so on guard all the time, and yeah. it's like for all the issues that adulthood brings. I always say, like, make me seventy instead of seventeen. Yeah, again. yeah, seriously. And I think maybe I thought that other people were allowed to be earnest when they were in relationships. And I thought that um, 
I just really wanted to like feel big emotions. Sincerity. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's still what I felt before I met my boyfriend. I was like, I want to have these incredible feelings of, even if they're sorrow or like mm. heartbreak, I was like, I want to feel these things. And so even when the relationship wasn't a thing and when it was just a very new thing, meeting this guy and talking to MSN, I was like, I just want this to be real and I want it to be mm. sincere. So I'm just going to try and make it that way. And then obviously it didn't, <laughs> didn't happen. Yeah, because it's... um. You forget that that is like, when people are in relationships, most people that are in functioning relationships, it there it does allow you this small space in life. Particularly as most British people, most people I know are kind of endlessly cynical and self-deprecating mm. and not very honest. Mm -hmm. It is this like freeing, same with having children, I imagine as well, mm. this like very freeing space in your life of just like unguarded yeah sincerity and, yeah, and, yeah and love and yeah even like one of my most cynical friends who's we're always taking the piss out of everything and we're always you know mocking sincerity online mm -hmm. and whatever <laughs> and there was a, a really she's in a very happy relationship and there was a really illuminating moment for me where we were cooking together and she'd just come um back from holiday with her boyfriend and they'd be like rented a villa in Italy and we were cooking and she was like, can you pass me the salt? And we were chopping and whatever. And I passed her something and she just went, um, oh, thank you, Mia Moore. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, what? What did you just call me? And wow. she was so embarrassed. And she was like, nothing, nothing. I didn't call anything. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, yeah. Mia, what? And she was like, <laughs> Mia, she said, oh, it's just something that me and Bertie called. Well, you know, when we were in it, you know, she's like, and they call each other that, you know, because yeah, they love Italy yeah. and they always cooking together, whatever. And it was like such a small like insight to me of this whole private side of her heart mm. and herself that yeah, I will yeah. never get to see really. Yeah, yeah. And it's um and it's sad if you're not allowed that space, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think I used to listen to a lot of Laura Marling. Oh, me too. <laughs> but I was so in in uni as well I would listen to a lot of Laura Marling and I was so like stressed out about the fact that she was I wasn't her and she was this sort of sad elfin uh, interesting girl and I was this like loud um, manic <laughs> stressed out obsessed girl and I would just have these moments where I would sort of try and pretend to be her because I was like I think that's what boys want I think they want these like complicated women who seem quite distant from them whereas I'm like up in their face like writing them letters <laughs> telling them everything about myself and I was like this is where I'm going wrong I have to sort of like be mysterious and hold myself back but I, just, I can't do it it's just not who I am at all but for a long time I was like I need to be sad and I need to be quiet and then people will be interested in what I have to say mm. rather than shouting the loudest all the time <laughs> and if it's not too nosy a question mm. what did it feel like falling in love for the first time at 27 was did it feel like it was what you had imagined it would be um yeah, I think I think just before that I'd like seen a few people and it had been varying levels of stressful, like nice in many ways as well, but a lot of them had been just like taking up a lot of energy. And I think I thought that love was complicated and um sort of yeah, quite manic and anxiety inducing. Yeah, and I thought that there was like highs and lows and just like these like spikes of like incredible joy and then sometimes it was horrible and complicated but it was exciting. Um and then 
uh, I met my boyfriend and I was like, this is so lovely. And I remember someone had someone told me that um, they were saying that their parents had said that falling in love felt like getting into a warm bath. Mm. And I was like, this is this, that's what this feels like for me. Mm. And so another friend had said that falling in love is just easy. Mm. And I remember being like, you must have a really poor relationship. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I just I was convinced that it was like rock and roll and like obsession. Mm. Um, I think maybe because I'd just been rejected so many times, I was like it's like the opposite of rejection. It's like really being like really close to this person and um, not leaving your house for seven days because all you're doing is like staring into each other's eyes. Um, and then I met my boyfriend and I was like, oh, it's just it's just so nice. And you just think that's so lovely and great. And you love their company. You just want to be with them all the time. I am so intrigued by your choice for a passionate love story, Lolly. <laughs> As a fellow suburban girl, mm-hmm. it is London. London, London town, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's the idea of, it's. I think it's based on not quite living in London when you're growing up mm. um, and always being on the border and always sort of feeling like you were lying when you said you were from London, but mm. also knowing that that was where you were meant to be and that was the place that you identified with the most and now when I go to like LA or New York I'm still like I just love London I think a lot of, I, I, the first time I went to LA I was really grateful that I got to do it at like a youngish age because I just I just can't think of anything worse than spending 15 years of my life my career thinking I've got to get to LA I've got to get there and then realizing that I hate it <laughs> do that, you hate it I don't I don't I don't love it at all I, I would never move there I mean, inevitably I'll be there next year, but no. In my head, I'm like, I have no interest in being there whatsoever. And maybe it's because I've fallen in love as well. But yeah. at the moment, I'm like, for the first time I went there, I wasn't, I hadn't met my boyfriend yet. And I just, it's just so different from London. And I think going to LA made me love London even more. Well, I've never been to LA. I'm desperate to go. Can you mm. tell me the, the marked differences between LA and London? Um, everyone drives in LA. And I love getting the tube and I love getting buses and nobody really does that in LA. No one that I know would do that in LA. Um, and there's no centre. It's just sort of this like sprawling mass of motorways and roads. Um, and I remember I had like two meetings that were a 20 minute walk away from each other. And I was like, oh, I'll just walk. And I was just sort of walking, walking down a motorway in like the baking heat. And I was like, this is not, <laughs> this is not London. This is not what I want to be doing. Um, and uh, what else? I think because we were talking about red wine, people don't drink as much in LA. Maybe it's the people that I was hanging out with. Americans don't drink that much. They don't. I think people in New York do, but yeah, definitely like not compared to me. I don't think they, they always <laughs> seem to be yeah, yeah, like yeah. flummoxed by yeah, drinking. Same. <laughs> um, but yeah, like weed is much of a bigger thing in LA than yes, drinking. Yes. Um, also, I f- think that I would never want to live in a place where. My career, the, the town is basically about acting and it's about Hollywood. And I just find that a mad concept that if I move there, my friends would all be actors and my friends would be people who work in comedy and that would be my main focus all the time. And even when I first started doing comedy, I remember thinking, ooh, this feels like I'm going to be thinking about myself 
a lot mm. and twenty four seven basically, mm. and it feels like a very selfish job. That's interesting. Yeah, and if I moved to LA, that would just be the case, like all the time. Um, whereas in London, you like obviously because I grew up here, but I have friends. You didn't who do. grow up there, Lolly. <laughs> you grew up. In I grew Surrey. up on Oxford Street. <laughs> <laughs> and I can say that to you lovingly as a girl who did not grow up in the North London suburbs. She grew up in Middlesex. <laughs> See, I didn't grow up in Middlesex. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I have friends who do loads of different things, and I can escape from comedy if I want to. Whereas if I move to LA, I just, when I went there, I just thought it just seems mad that uh, a career would be the most important thing, and being famous would be the most important thing over having a nice time yeah, and just being with people that you like. I mean, obviously, people can go to LA and meet people that they like and fall in love and have a wonderful time. But I think I'd rather have less money. I'd, I'd rather have less money and be a bit poorer and live in London than go to LA and work on a studio sitcom for six months that I hate, even if it was paying me loads of money. Mm. And when you were growing up in London suburbs. Mm. Did you, I remember reading Billy Crystal said in his memoir, he grew up on Long Island and he would look out on Manhattan and he said it felt like Oz. And oh, he wow. just wanted to get to Oz. And that mm-hmm. just described, Sandmore was quite high up so you could kind of look out on London and I would look out on, you know, the BT Tower or, mm-hmm. I thought it like the Shard, but the Shard was definitely not erected <laughs> when I was a teenager. Uh, you know, those London monuments, the London Eye or whatever, and I would think, oh, just, that's where I'm meant to be. Mm-hmm. I've got to get right in the centre there, which is why I will always fight as hard as I can to live in the most dirty and central (laughs) and disgusting part of London rather than a leafy, you know, whatever. Gorgeous house further out. Yeah, because I've just always, that was the thing, that was the feeling from standing on the edge of London, literally, of being like, I've got to get to the centre. Yeah. Did you have that feeling as well? I think so. I I would go to gigs and things in London and... We would like get the train from Sutton and go to Victoria and get on the tube, and then when I got there, I felt like this is where I should be. I think it was it was more sort of like going there occasionally and being like I'm having such a fun time being here. This feels like imagine having a life like this all the time. Um, I think like growing up in that era of like indie music and like dirty trainers and like Converse and just sort of being a bit like <laughs> I don't know what the word is like a bit scruffy and like arty and cool I was really obsessed with that kind of person and the kind of person who yeah like lived in Kentish Town and was like would walk around London and wear like scruffy clothes and like a blazer (laughs) a girl wearing a blazer um and that was yeah that was the kind of person I wanted to be because I was from like just a quite very boring place where everyone wore heels and stuff (laughs) I wanted to be don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. That yeah. there's like when you live in middle class suburbia, mm. there are these very rudimentary signifiers of like identity and wealth yeah. and sexiness and yeah. yeah. And I'm like quite repulsed by them now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. In homes, in the what the people wore. And I understand, yeah. I understand why those signifiers became important mm. for people who chose to live there but yeah. I, too, I too wanted to looked at those people who were scruffy or bohemian exactly or yeah whatever and I just yeah I desperately wanted like to express my identity through that yeah. rather than through like you know a four by four car with heated seats yeah exactly yeah and, and I a was body con dress or whatever yeah I was much more interested in listening to indie music than 
Well, I mean, I, I sort of went through different phases, but when I sort of was about 15, 16, I was obsessed with indie music. And in Sutton, it was like, there was like nightclubs where they would play pop and dance music, but there wasn't really anywhere where you, where you could listen to indie music or like, all those places were in central London or somewhere else in London. And so, yeah, London felt like the place where I needed to be in order to find my people, I think. Whenever I'm in Victoria and I see, like, I'm like, oh, if I had to run for that train. <laughs> <laughs> and when I see people, like, getting on trains to go to Victoria, it, feel, it feels like uh, those are people that I grew up with who still live there. I can't, like, get my head around the fact that those would be people who have moved to live in those places. Yeah. If, I, if I, I'm ever on a train with... If I'm ever going home... And then I go on a train back into central London and I see the other people going into Sutton. I'm like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many things you could be seeing. (laughs) Lolly, I'm very interested by your final love story, which is the story of everlasting love. Mm -hmm. When I first was hounding you, for your answers via text. Yes. Saying, Lolly, I sort of have to go to bed <laughs> and I would really like to just write the questions up yes. before I go to bed. <laughs> it was clear that you were perhaps well-oiled <laughs> on a night out. I don't know what you're talking about. And your answers <laughs> would maybe be fair to say would slightly dashed off. <laughs> and your everlasting love <laughs> was red wine. <laughs> I don't know who that was. Somebody got took my phone and uh, <laughs> hacked into my Red phone. wine, baby, lol. <laughs> I think is what you wrote. And I just thought, I'm just going to deal with this in the morning. <laughs> sure, I was drinking red wine at the time. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> but you've actually revised that choice. Yeah, I do love red wine. Um, but I have revised the choice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and your choice is Edinburgh. Yes. So for anyone who's not familiar... Um, because I think so many people who've been to the Edinburgh Festival either performed there or directed there or been an audience member there, we just think of it as sort of a part of the calendar year of, yeah. you know, the general calendar year. Yeah, of, even when I'm not there, I think of it as yeah. August is Edinburgh. But it's, for a lot of people, it's such a bizarre, it's such a bizarre concept and it's such a bizarre little microcosm for a month. Mm-hmm. Can you explain kind of what it is and what it feels like and what it means for a comedian? Um, so it's a month of um, all different kinds of shows, comedy, theatre, music, dance, uh, and most people will take up a show that they've created and they'll perform it every night or every day for the month and they'll get one day off. Um, well, some people can do like a week-long run, but in general you tend to do sort of 25 nights of this show. Um, and I went for the first time in 2011 um, and I flyered for some comedy shows. Which um, literally means pounding up and down yeah. the Royal Mile. Standing in the rain, handing out flyers for shows that you're not even in. I think the first time I went up, I did it for maybe two days and I was like, I don't like this anymore. <laughs> and I stopped. Uh, and then the second time I went up, I did it again, but I did it for a sketch group that I really liked. And so I was much more excited about it. Mm. Um, and then I started doing my own shows there. And yeah, but I, like you were saying, like even... For someone who's done it, I think it's still quite a bizarre thing. Yeah. Because even when I think about it, it's like there's no other job in the world where you get to do the thing that you love doing for a month of the year. It's mm. like, it's such an insane concept, I think. Um, and it's kind of like a month long 
office Christmas party with yeah. everyone yeah. who you know. and Yeah, I think of it as like summer camp. Yeah, it's, that's it. That's yeah. it. It's summer camp for everyone in theatre or, yeah. or comedy or TV. Mm-hmm. So tell me about how old were you in your first one? Um, the first time I went up, I was, I think, 21. Um, when I first did my show, I was 25, I think. And did you just feel like you'd arrived, like you'd found your people, you'd found... Yeah. Yeah. I felt like it was the coolest place in the mm. world. And I felt like so much more confident than I was before I went to Edinburgh. So I would go and... I, I just knew that I loved comedy and I knew that I wanted to be involved in it somehow, but I didn't know how. Um, and... I would just like be in these bars and I would see all these comedians that I loved and I would sort of be like quite taken aback by it, but also spurred on by this weird confidence to talk to them and yeah. hang out with them and just yeah. be with them all the time. And I just felt like I was just so lucky. Um, last year, I couldn't go up. I was planning to go up and then I got cast in a show and I had to cancel my show. And I think part of that is the reason why it's like an everlasting love because... I kind of thought that that would have been my third solo show and I was thinking that I would do three shows and then maybe take like quite a long break and maybe go back many, many years later. But now that I haven't done that third show, it feels like this thing that uh, will, I'll always be connected to and I'll, mm. I'll never quite have, not that you can like finish Edinburgh, but just this like trailing relationship that has never quite been like conquered, I think. I think as well... I did three summers at Edinburgh and the first summer that I did there, I wasn't performing. Mm-hmm. I'm very sad to say the latter latter two I was. <laughs> uh, but the first Edinburgh that I did, I was flyering for a friend, my friend Richard, who I met, who was older than me and he was, he'd been going to Edinburgh for like years and years and years and he had, you know, lots of writer friends and a lot of comedian friends mm-hmm. and I remember, yeah, I was 16 and I stayed. I don't know why my parents let me go. It was literally me, Richard, Richard's actor for his show. He was like double my age. Wow. And we were all in a flat together. <laughs> um, and I remember feeling like I'd spent so, my whole adolescent life, I had felt totally uncool. Like I, like I was annoying, like I had nothing interesting to say, mm-hmm. like I was totally unattractive and irrelevant and awful. And that, that's not an exclusive experience. Most people feel that being mm-hmm. adolescent. But I was not a cool, you know, I was not a cool teenager. And then to go to this world mm. where it was like people that looked like me, it was mm-hmm. like, you know, I met Miranda Hart that, mm. that summer because yeah, yeah, she yeah. was a friend of Richard's, a girl who was like the same height as me and there were you know people with all different voices and there were fat people and there were skinny people yeah, and yeah. there were introverted people and people mm-hmm. with glasses and hairy people mm. and do you know what I mean like <laughs> yeah, there were yeah. all these different types of people and they were all fucking cool yeah 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 and they were all rock stars in their own way yeah and exactly. they were having the time of their life yeah and it just showed a different it was like a preview of like, this is a world that's going to be out there for you when you're an adult. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I felt like, even though I hadn't started doing comedy, I felt like I was funny. And I felt like just that, that confidence to like talk to people and um, be charming and be charismatic with people that I admired. I suddenly thought like, this feels like the universe is telling me that this is where I need to be. But I didn't really have that when I was at university um, or before that at all. Mm. Um, but suddenly I was like these are my people Mm. um 
and and also it's just a very useful thing to be like okay well this is this is the career that I want this is where all the people doing this are so that's exactly what I need to do mm. rather than other careers we kind of have to there's no like set route that you go down to um be successful um but yeah I just felt very lucky that I was like okay well this is it now I mm. know that I need to get back to this place because this is where I'm happy and this is where all my people are lolly I'm glad you went to Edinburgh. I'm glad you found your people. And I'm so glad you came on Love Stories. I've fallen a bit in love with you. Thank you for telling me your love stories. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Love Stories. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to give the series a boost and help others find it. And you can buy my book, Everything I Know About Love, published by Fig Tree which is out in paperback on the 7th of February with a brand new bonus chapter, Everything I Know at 30. You can find my book in Waterstones, on Amazon and in all good bookshops or buy the audiobook with the bonus chapter on Audible. Love Stories is recorded in the Penguin Studio in London. The producer is Adrian Cecil. The editor is Richard Hughes. The music was composed and recorded by Lauren Benstead. Tune in next week when another guest will be telling me their love stories. <laughs>